Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Let's uh, grab our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, as we're doing that, I just want to throw one more little announcement on, and that is that uh, Next Step has been working super hard, and we're excited to have the nursery open, and uh, that was a big accomplishment. And we have a lower level that we're working with the city and uh, getting uh, uh, permits and sign-offs or whatever it is. And uh, so there's uh, various little jobs, medium jobs, to be done. And uh, they kind of come up quickly, and so like for the nursery, they had to clean the counters, clean the cabinets, clean the windows and everything, and that was kind of a job that came up on the radar. Uh, so just so you know, we have a list at the ministry center, and if you're willing to be called on for those kinds of things as we work to get the lower level finished and cleaned up and pass inspection, there's going to be some jobs coming up, and so if you'll sign up, then we can contact you and check and see if you can step in and help with that. And so we'd like to have a group of people that could help us as needed. This morning, we're going to be looking at the church is for building up one another. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians 14. Um, every time we have new experiences in life, we have to learn and we have to become familiar with the situations. We have to meet different challenges. We, and we kind of develop some kind of experience in these new situations. Whether it's taking a new job, moving to a new city, going to a new school, all of us are in that process of learning and, and adapting and becoming comfortable in new situations. And I have one of those uh, situations that happens to us all throughout our life. And, and uh, so one of the new situations for me, and it's been maybe six months or a year, I don't remember, uh, I was diagnosed with diabetes. And so as I uh, try to learn about this and adjust to this and figure out how I live, I have to figure out what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, and, you know, those kinds of things. I have to watch my blood sugar and all that kind of stuff. I went to a class on what diabetes is, and kinda, you kind of kind of become familiar. And I went to the restaurant to watch a sporting event because we didn't have it on our TV at home. And while I was sitting in the restaurant, uh, there weren't too many people there. It must not have been, must have been a Packer game or something. We're, we're the Packer fans. I don't know. Uh, there was this other guy in the restaurant. It was just him and I, and, and I already had my food. I was kind of eating. I heard him come in, and he had this big, long conversation with the waiter about just being diagnosed with diabetes. And that his, you know, he's watching his sugar, and I was kind of really interested because I was kind of in that same boat. And uh, he talked about the last time he was at the sports bar. He ordered a big plate of chicken wings and a gigantic order of French fries. And then about two hours later, he was home, and he checked his blood sugar, and, man, it was off the charts. So now he's just trying to figure out what he's going to do. And so he decided, I'm not going to eat the chicken wings. Just bring me a big plate of French fries. <laughs> 
And, of course, I don't know him very well. I don't know him at all, so I wasn't going to interject, but I was like, oh, no, no, don't do that. Order the chicken wings. and Forget the fries. You probably do a lot better. Uh, but, you know, life is kind of like that, and you kind of get into new situations where you're, you have to learn. You have to experience and understand, and you've got to figure out what's a priority, what's going to be helpful, and what's not going to be. Well, we've been studying 1 Corinthians, and we've been looking at a lot of situations, but I want us not to think too negatively about the 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian people, because what happens is that this church was founded by Paul, and he wrote to them. If you remember, I always refer back to this pretty regular. The first chapter, Paul is really stoked about this group of people. He thinks that they're, he calls them the church of God. He says they are sanctified in the Lord Jesus. They had been given all the gifts that they need for life and godliness. They had been gifted with gifts to contribute to the life of the church and that God is even going to bring them to the end of history and they're anticipating the day that Jesus will return. That's who they are. And that's important that we remember who they are. Because if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is who we are. God has done something miraculous in our lives. He has changed us and made us new. So when we're looking through the book of 1 Corinthians and we see like divisions in the church and arguments about sexuality and immoral, immorality in the lives of the people and, and this whole thing about eating meat or not or, you know, all of these debates, what that means is they're on a path of learning what's important. How do they live so that it, their lives please God? And that that's not an automatic thing. And even for us, as we read through 1 Corinthians, we better realize we're on a path. God is up to something in each of us. He is working in our lives. We're not just here to be participants and just once a week pop in on church and say, hey, thanks God for everything. No, God wants you. He wants your life. You are to be his. You are to offer your every motivation, your every energy, your every experience into his hands as an offering of worship. Because he is God. He made you. He deserves it. And he's invited us to be able to do that because he sent his son who set us up, made us new, given us, given us the opportunity to walk in that kind of relationship with him. And so when we turn to uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at chapter 12 through 14, I said that that was, you know, we've talked about a lot of topics. Well, 12 through 14 is another area where the Corinthians are trying to know what it means to follow Christ. To, they're learning what's important, what's valuable, how ought we to live now that we are made God's people. And this 12 through 14 is talking about spiritual gifts. And you know that if you were here for chapter 12, 
Chapter 12, if you remember, was a chapter about the abundance of spiritual gifts that God, in his mercy and his grace, pours out his spirit on his people and he gifts us in the church, in the community, with various gifts. What, was the, what were the Corinthians doing that was so screwed up? They were pitting each other against one another on the basis of what kind of gift they had. If they were valuable, if they were powerful, if they were influential. And they were thinking about their place, their importance, and their involvement in the church. When Paul says, no, you are off base. What the gospel is about is delivering people, bringing them into a church, and making them a community, a family together. And in a family, or Paul uses the image of a body, in a body, you don't just say, well, I, you know, remember this, this is pretty powerful picture, imagery. You don't say, oh, my finger hurts, just chop it off. You know, I just stub my foot, <laughs> I don't need that anymore. You wouldn't be getting around very well. Every part of the body is important. And so in chapter 12, we learn that there's a great diversity of gifts but a great importance placed on unity and care. So much so, in chapter 12, it said, if you're kind of one of the high and mighty gifts, you think, like the head or the hand that can do a bunch of stuff, you don't need any attention. You should give attention to your weaker parts. Don't focus on yourself because why? The church is not about you. It's about being a community of God, God's people. It's about being together. And so then in chapter 13, one of the commentaries says that there is a digression. I don't really like that word. I can't figure of another word. But a, a, a digression sounds like maybe a sub point. But uh, I think it's a, 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 a dimaxification. Max, I better not mess with that. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's an, a magnification of a principle, an important truth that should it is more important than even the diversity and unity in chapter 12, and that is the love chapter, remember. And so much so is that important. That should drive us because it goes to the very heart of our salvation. When we realize that God loves us and made us new and he put his love into our heart, that that love must flow out to everyone. It must be the driving force of everything that you do. And if it's not the driving force then you're not doing anything. Because if you don't have that love, you don't have anything. That's how strong it is. So Paul's building this case and trying to walk through this issue of gifts and this problem in the Corinthian church of saying I'm important and I need to listen to you and you're not important because I got this gift and you don't have that gift and da-da-da-da-da. And so then in chapter 14, which we're looking at, we're going to read 1 through 25. Paul is actually using two gifts, I think, as an example of the gifts that he described in chapter 12. He's picking two gifts that are pretty prominent. They're recognized. Uh, they're prominent because the Corinthians think they're prominent. We know their two gifts are tongues and prophecy. One of the parts that's hard about this passage for us is that 
If I were to ask you, you're reading in your Bible reading and you're, you're doing your reading or you're uh, doing your devotions or you're at the church and we read a passage about tongues and prophecy, what do you think about tongues and prophecy? What do they look like? What, what are they? You know, part of the problem is, is that we don't do those in a way that is distinct or recognizable. And Paul is going to talk in this passage about people that, that speak in tongues in the service and they're interpreted. And that if they speak in tongues in the service and they're interpreted, that's as important or as good as prophecy. But I will say that Paul talks about tongues. And what, what we're going to do is just kind of give a quick definition. What is tongues? Well, you have to remember back in the first place where tongues came on the scene in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were told after Jesus ascended into heaven to wait in Jerusalem till that miraculous moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And so the disciples are there in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost, so a lot of people from all over the region are coming to Jerusalem for this holy celebration. And a lot of those people have... They speak different languages is their main language. And the disciples, they're all kind of like Galileans. And so they're there, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and it's poured out on the church, and tongues of fire rest on their heads, and they're speaking in tongues. And it even in Acts chapter 2 says all the languages that are represented, because the people are all like, well, these guys are Galileans, and I hear them speaking in my native tongue. Where does that come from? And these disciples are all proclaiming the works of God and celebrating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they're wondering, what is going on? You remember? And Peter stands up and says, gives clarification, says, this is happening because of Jesus who was crucified here in Jerusalem by you all, by the people, and he died on your account, and God raised him from the dead. And that here we're witnessing the outpouring of the Spirit that had, he had promised. And he said, this is all in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And Joel chapter 2 is just saying days are coming when the Spirit of God will be poured out on his people and the young men will see visions and the old men will dream dreams and the young women will prophesy and, and all of the, the there's kind of concluding phrase of prophecy will be a, a big event. So what happened, what is tongues? It has this connection with prophecy because the tongues were poured out on the people in Jerusalem. And then, Pete, uh, then Peter references Joel, which is a prophecy about a day when the Spirit will come and the Spirit of prophecy will be evident, as, long as, vision, as well as visions and dreams. So in the early church, there was this kind of combination of prophecy and tongues. They stood together. And that's how the Corinthians got involved with tongues and prophecy. And I think that's why Paul talks about tongues and prophecy in chapter 14. Because tongues happened in Acts chapter 2. Peter said it was a fulfillment of prophecy and that it would be a spirit of prophecy. And so there was this combination. What, he, what Paul does in chapter 14 is separate their operation, their, 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 their job. And so that's what we're going to see because Paul is going to affirm that tongues, which I think 
in my best understanding, is um, kind of considered a prayer language, as our Pentecostal brothers and charismatic sisters think. It is a prayer language because Paul says that he prays in tongues and that when he prays in tongues, his mind is unfruitful, but his spirit speaks mysteries unto God. So there's something going on. It is true that not everybody has tongues. Not every, every person is gifted with tongues, though many were. When we see the Holy Spirit poured out in the book of Acts and it goes to various groups, a lot of times the sign of that is tongues. So tongues is something that is a communication from our spirit to God's spirit by His spirit. Some like might be talked of as a, a heavenly language or something like that. That's all well and good. I would say not every Christian has it, but every Christian could be open to that. But what Paul is interested in chapter 14 is that we understand that there is a place for that to be. There is a place of operation for that. And that Paul in chapter 14 is talking about the community, the church. And so he separates tongues and prophecy, and he says prophecy is important because prophecy is intelligible, it's understandable, it's speaking to the mind, and it's not just individual where one's speaking to God and the mind is unfruitful, therefore the brother standing next to him can't understand what's going on. Prophecy is spoken words of revelation, of truth, of encouragement, and that is important for the congregation. But there's one more point that is bigger, that is more important than either tongues or prophecy in these first 25 verses. And so we're going to read these verses, and you see if you can pick out what's more important. Um, follow along with me, if you would. Chapter uh, 14, 1 Corinthians. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather that you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, 
I am a foreigner to that speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in tongues should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue and my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, so what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say, Amen to your thanksgiving. Since they do not know what you are saying, you are, uh, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongues. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with the other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, they will not say, uh, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So Paul is trying to address this issue of tongues and prophecy, and really the Corinthians, they are emphasizing tongues. Their mistake is that they think if they speak in tongues, this validates their spiritual maturity. This shows their importance in the church, that God's Spirit is at work in them. But Paul is saying, what Paul does here, what he has done several times in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you remember, back in chapter, end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, Paul was talking about sex. And there was immorality in the church. And people were using uh, sexual expression outside of marriage and kind of a compliment to their experience in marriage. And people thought that that was fine as a Christian. And Paul said, no, you get, you, you get straighten out. And then, so there was these people that were promiscuous. And then on the other hand, in chapter 7, verse 1, there was this other group that said, yeah, we know sex is bad. Don't ever do it. Never enter into it. And so they said, don't ever get married, and if you get married, don't have sex in there. Sex is no good. So Paul, in that case, was trying to say, no, I disagree with these people that are promiscuous, but I disagree with these people that are real legalistic and, and strong against sex, too. There is a proper place for sex. It is a beautiful thing that God gives to us and it is in the context of marriage and you must not be promiscuous but you must not reject sex altogether 
So Paul is trying to stand in the middle. Well, there's a sense in which Paul is standing in the middle here because he's talking about tongues and he's talking about prophecy. But hear what he says in there. Many times he says, tongues are good. He says, I practice tongues. I speak in tongues. And, and I even wish that all Christians would speak in tongues. And what is this speaking in tongues? Some kind of communication with God in a spiritual sense where your mind's unfruitful. And sometimes people say kind of um, formulating words that don't make sense, but it's a spiritual communication. I've never, uh, well, I have prayed in tongues, but I'm not sure that it was really praying in tongues. And so uh, I've never put much stock in it, so I haven't done that in years and years. It was when I was in college. But I do think that praying in tongues is not an evil thing. And I don't, I don't know that we can say that the praying in tongues, like you might hear it on TV or at a Pentecostal church or, you know, I don't know that that's wrong. I, I, would say, I wouldn't say it's wrong. I don't know that it's absolutely the kind of tongues that the New Testament's talking about, but I still don't think it's wrong. I think it's beneficial. I would say that tongues for many people in our day is a prayer expression and it can be similar, and I get this from J.A. Packer, can be simpler, similar to the Quaker silent prayer. Quaker silent prayer was that they had a practice where Quakers would, you would pray everything that you could pray in your mind to God. But if you've ever prayed for a long time to God, sometimes your words limit you. You just run out of things to say, and you're just kind of, and you don't have to end your prayer. The Quaker said, no, at that moment, just sit in silence. Stay before the Lord. Stay near to the Lord. Focus on the Lord and just being in His presence. There is communion and there is communication. There is an experience of God in that moment. And I would say, for people that pray in tongues, I'm not saying whether it's biblical praying in tongues or not, I don't know, but I would say that they come to it with a heart of wanting to honor God. They're sitting in the presence of God. And yes, they're praying in tongues is what they understand it, but they're still there before God, worshiping God, focusing on God as they do that, believing that God is praying through them. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's not something we should be scared of. It, it is a bad thing when we start saying, well, see, I'm spiritual and you're not. What the Corinthians were doing. Say, well, I pray in tongues and you don't, so I feel sorry for you. Uh, th that's not, no. We're together. The, Paul's point is that we don't do that to one another. That's our bounds. We don't do that in the church. So, Paul here, though, is saying some positive things about praying in tongues. He's pray he wishes that all would pray in tongues. But he does say some corrective things. He emphasizes prophecy. And there's a sense in which this is a context of the church. And so what's Paul mainly concerned about? When we and I said we'd read through the passage and you'd see what it was. Sorry. Uh, we read through the passage, you'd see what it was. What was Paul mainly concerned about? It wasn't prophecy and it wasn't tongues. It was about what's good for the church, what builds up the church, 
what benefits one another. Even Paul uses the illustration of if you're in the church service together and you're doing praising God with tongues and you're giving thanks to God with tongues, but your neighbor who is there in the worship with you can't understand what you're saying. They can't say amen. They can't join in. Don't do that. Paul says, I would rather speak five words that are intelligible, that people can understand and hear, than 10,000 words in tongues. Is there any question of what Paul's priority is here? I don't think so. He wants us as a community of believers to be together and to be for one another. And this is all in the context of all of the gifts that were described in chapter 12 and in context of verse chapter 13 on the love chapter that you must love one another. You must give of yourself for one another. There is nothing more important than that. And that if you, got, if you ha are gifted with tongues... Or you could say something intelligible that will benefit the church. Benefiting the church is what is the priority. It must drive what and who we are as a church together. And Paul uses so many illustrations in this text to say that in understanding what is being said in the context of the church is so important. And, you know, he uses the illustration of the trumpet, like being at, you know, uh, in the military and the, the reveille. And, you know, no one got up out of bed because, you know, they're blowing the trumpet, but it wasn't in order and the sound didn't make any sense and everybody just stayed in bed, you know. You know no one's going out to fight the enemy. No one's getting ready for anything and nothing's happening. That is not what the church is for. We're actually to come together to build up one another, to edify one another. And therefore, this doesn't only apply to tongues and prophecy. This is at the heart of the gifts that God gives to the church. That we're to use our gifts in whatever form they come. Because we're entering into the life and community of a church together. We're connected with one another. Do you realize, and I guess I missed some of my points, so the importance of gifts must be determined by the edifying influence. There is a danger of using gifts. And do I have that? There's a danger of using gifts in a way that undermines edification. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. If we do that, if I teach in a way that makes me sound important or smart or puffed up or draws attention to me, I'm violating what I am called to do because my number one job is to give of myself to you for the benefit of our community and for this church so that we grow together and together we proclaim that Jesus is real. That he is alive and well. So the first part of chapter 14 says that we do all these things so that we edify believers. But you notice when it got down to the end, just to 23, 24, 25, it's talking about when there are inquirers, unbelievers in the midst. Should they be hearing tongues? They won't get that. They should be hearing words of truth. This does kind of expand the idea of prophecy a little bit because I think Prophecy is not just getting up in front and talking to people. So I'm the only one prophesying, you know. So some people think prophecy is preaching or explaining the scriptures. Or some people think prophecy is just telling the future. I think prophecy is telling the truth 
according to God's revelation. And Paul kind of validates that because he says when an unbeliever, someone that's inquiring, comes in amongst the church and all are prophesying. Notice that in verse 25 or 24. All are prophesying. That means all are living according to the truth that God has revealed. And in some way, we are, by our lives, by our commitment to God and the truth of Jesus Christ, we're living out and demonstrating the truth that Jesus is real. He's coming back. There's hope only in Him. There's salvation only in Him. And by our lives, we realize and show to the world that life comes by yielding to Jesus. And what's the result of that? I love the last little phrase. That person says, surely God is with them. That's Paul's dream. That's God's dream for his church. That we understand that we're hanging together, that we're gifted together, and we have a variety of gifts, but we're primarily called to love one another and build up and edify the church. So that God's picture of Jesus as the one redeemer and restorer and hope for life is seen through the life of the church. What a high and marvelous calling that is. We don't want to have a a difficult sound to hear. We don't want to just grab an instrument and pluck away at different sounds and nobody can understand what you're playing, you know. That's why I don't pick up a guitar. I've done that, you know. It doesn't sound pretty. But if we come together and we're speaking the truth, living the truth, and loving the Savior, the world will see a taste of what is divine and what is holy and where hope can be found. Let's be that kind of a church. Don't just assume that we come as individuals and it doesn't really matter how we sing, it doesn't really matter how we love one another and greet one another. Don't don't think it doesn't matter how you serve in the nursery. Every single one of us is connected. Every single one of us is important. And we all are contributing to the life of the church. And God wants to speak to the world about truth, reality, and hope through his people. And that's what Paul's concerned about. That's what God's concerned about. That's what we must be concerned about. We're learning. We're growing. Let's continue to press in to know what it means to be the church that God desires for us to be. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are a gracious God who continues to make us and pursue us and to shape us. Lord, I pray that we walk in step with your will and your desires for us. Continue to help us to understand what is important and what is valuable and how we are to live in your kingdom under the lordship of Christ and how we are to live together as your people. Lord, there is a goal and a dream that the world would see the truth of Christ. And your goal and dream is that that neon sign would come from the relationships and the picture of your church 
Lord, I pray that we would continue to grow in that, to be a loving church for one another, edifying church for one another, a gifted church serving one another, and reaching out to those inquirers and unbelievers all around us. The hope of the gospel so much. In Jesus' name, amen.